this next section uh, has the title uh, Alternative Interpretations of Internal and External Contemplation. So um, he goes into a, a, a bit of detail here, um, and um, this involves a lot of uh, say exploring other, peop uh, other people's opinions and uh, exact, the exact or intended meaning for uh, these terms. And uh, so the, this whole area is, uh, um, he, he goes into you know, uh, different quotations and different suggestions, but um, as a background to it, the, the, the way that the Buddha used language in the Pali Canon is generally pretty flexible. And he, uh, he didn't try to pin down um, terms to specific and, de uh, and definite uh, meanings that the, you know the same word is used for the same purpose in all in, in all times and all situations, but he uses a far more of a, a, a like a, a non-technical terminology. So, for example, um, the um, the word kanda that we use for the, you know, say the five kandas, the body, uh, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. The word kanda just means like a, a lump or a heap or a group, a pile. It's, it's a very ordinary sort of rough household word. It's not a, a sort of specific philosophical term. And um, so you can say the, the five heaps, the, you know, the five, the five lumps or the five piles. So it's a, 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 a rough household term. So similarly, that when the, the Buddha's approach towards language is fairly flexible, so that, um, uh, say, is frustrating to people who want to have everything pinned down, and have a, a sort of a precise and exact meaning for the for every word in, uh, uh, in every situation. So uh, it's helpful to bear that in mind that the the Buddha was speaking mostly to um, uh, uneducated people. That the, a few of, the, of those who he was talking to uh, during his lifetime would have been um, uh, scholars or, or those who had some kind of educational background. But the uh, the um, uh, I say the majority of the people that he's talking to were um, you know, ordinary uh, householders, people who were merchants or farmers, or um, people who had ordinary um, uh, family people, householders, and so uh, then that's also where the monastic order had come from. from the, the nuns and the monks were all from a, a broad range of backgrounds. So he was he was speaking to communicate. And so rather than, uh, I mean, when you, sometimes you read a, a, a philosophy book and you hear, oh, this is really, this is a really important book, this is really so influential and so significant, um, say something like um, Alfred North Whitehead's book, Process and Reality, oh, it's really important, this is, a, you know, this is so significant, this is really, really um, uh, powerful and significant insight, and then you open it up and you go, whoa. <laughs> what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> so you read the first paragraph three times, four times, five times, and you go, right, well, yes, good for you, Alfred. Um, thank you. Um, and so then you read someone who's actually been able to decode it and understand it, and they, they tell you what the, the philosopher's trying to, trying to say to you, or um, someone like Heidegger in, in, in the German side of the, um, the equation that... Uh, you, oh, uh, you know, you have uh, you know fantastically well thought through, and it all makes absolutely perfect sense, and it, it's uh, uh, extraordinarily you know refined and and skillful. But the average Petugina picks it up and goes, "What?" <laughs> so the Buddha was trying not to do that, um, 
and that even though he, he had a, a dazzling intellect and you know, extraordinary range of, uh, of skills and resources that he could draw upon in terms of knowledge and understanding, his means of communication was uh, seemingly uh, non-technical and trying to use sort of everyday household language, kitchen language, workshop and farmyard language. Uh, and so, so many of his uh, analogies come from looking after cows, um, shaping wood, uh, cooking food, um, yeah, the looking after a, um, a house and such like that the ordinary people could uh, could relate to and understand. Lots of military analogies because he was a he was a warrior noble. So uh, and just as we go into passages like this from the book, it's good to bear that in mind that um, what Venerable Anale is um, trying to do here is also p picking up this uh, this area of trying to pin down specific meaning or people um, uh, say having different interpretations. But uh, uh, as we've said before in a few other readings, uh, I feel the main issue is not the precise um, detail of the of the interpretation, but how the mind clings or doesn't cling to such interpretations. Because you can take um, uh, very refined aspects of philosophy and um, you know, something you know, extraordinarily sort of subtle and and esoteric. Um, very, very refined in, in many respects, but then be having a a, um, a, a a debate with someone else that is rather like a, a fight between eight-year-olds in the school playground. That it's like you're right, no, I'm right, no, I, no, I'm right, no, you're wrong, I'm right, and it's uh, uh, because of the attention going on to the uh, the sort of refinement of the the philosophy. Is it is jnana dasana the same as dasana jnana? Now, jnana dasana is not the same as jnana dasana jnana. But of course, it must be the same. It's the same thing. No, no. Dasana jnana is not the same as jnana dasana. Every, every fool knows that. <laughs> I have sat in on a Dhamma talk where um, the, the Ajahn in question explained at great length that dasana jnana was not the same as jnana dasana. It's completely different. And there was a number of us sitting there going, What? <laughs> But to him, it was it was very very uh, significant. So the energy behind a disagreement is something that uh, needs to have the attention put on it because we can take a position and say, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, you know, you're you're stupid, uh, um, I'm correct, um, <clears throat> or, or 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 just being in doubt. Oh, which one's right? Is it Yana Dasna? I never heard of that before. Oh, should I should I be should I have an opinion about that? Well, well, I never heard of Dustin and Yana before. Is that, oh, I have to find out about that. Creating a cause for more doubt. But uh, the the point I, I feel is that significant is to look at the mind that's grasping and to train the mind to, to not grasp. And then we can relate to different meanings, different interpretations, different terminology with a, a, a an attitude that is, is open and flexible. And we can... Uh, Say draw upon our own practical experience of uh, of the teachings and, and how to apply it, and be guided by that rather than taking hold of an opinion or an interpretation and and, and trying to um, defend it or identify with it. So, having said that, I'll start with the, with the reading. Modern meditation teachers have proposed various alternative interpretations of internal and external satipatthana. Some take internal and external 
to mean, quite literally, what is spatially internal and external. They suggest that external bodily feelings, for example, are those observed at skin level, that would be bahida, while internal bodily feelings are those occurring deeper within the body, ajata. Internal ajata occurs in the Satipatthana Sutta itself in a clearly spatial sense, referring to the six internal senses in contrast to their external objects. However, the Pali term used in this context for the external sense objects is not bahida, but bahira. In contrast, internal ajata and external bahida, as qualities mentioned in the refrain, do not seem to convey such a spatial distinction. In the case of contemplating the sense spheres, for example, such a spatial understanding of internal and external does not yield a meaningful way of practice, since according to the refrain, the entire sense sphere, consisting of internal sense and external object, has to be contemplated internally and then externally. If you can follow the logic of that, it doesn't make sense. The difficulty involved in taking external and internal to represent a spatial distinction extends to most of the Satipatthana contemplations. Neither states of mind, nor such dhammas as the hindrances or the awakening factors fit easily into a distinction between spatially internal and external occurrences, like within the body or outside the body. Unless one were to adopt the commentarial interpretation and take external to refer to states of mind, hindrances, or awakening factors occurring in other persons, which is personally how I uh, uh, I interpret this, that uh, internal means relating to our life and, and our experience, and then uh, of you know this life, this body, and this this mind, and then the external, the the bahida um, referring to that of, of other people, other beings. Other teachers suggest that the distinction between internal and external contemplation hints at the difference between apparent and ultimate truth. Uh, and that's, uh, <coughs> he's quoting Ajahn uh, Lee uh, Damodaro and Samdet Nyana Sangwon on that. It's certainly true that as practice progresses, one comes to see phenomena more and more in their true nature. Yet it is highly improbable that it is a distinction between apparent and ultimate truth corresponds to the original sense of internal and external in the Satipatthana Sutta. Firstly, because neither of the two terms ever has this implication in the discourses, like that's never implied or, or stated anywhere else in the suttas. And secondly, simply because the distinction between these two levels of truth is a late development belonging to the post-canonical period. So that um, uh, distinction that is quite familiar to us, uh, samuti satcha or conventional truth and paramata satcha, uh, ultimate truth, that's not something that you find des uh, designated in, in that way in the suttas, but is uh, a description that you find both in the southern and, and northern tradition uh, from the um, the, sort of the post-canonical or commentarial uh, era, so uh, uh, well after the, the Buddha's time. Another interpretation 
proposes to distinguish between internal mental and external physical objects. So that in the case of feelings, for example, one distinguishes mental feelings, ajata, from physical feelings, bahida. And in the case of mind, one distinguishes between purely mental experience, ajata, and states of mind related to sensory experiences, bahida. And that's also Ajahn Lee Damodaro and Ajahn Mahabur talking about uh, those in those ways. This way of understanding internal and external can claim for support a passage in the Idipada Sangita. That's the uh, connected discourses about the, the basis of success, which relates internal contraction to sloth and torpor, while its externally distracted counterpart is sensual distraction by way of the five senses. Another relevant passage occurs in the Bojanga Sangita about the seven factors of enlightenment, which, differenti which differentiates the hindrances, sensual desire, aversion, and doubt into internal and external occurrences. And then the footnote on that says, however, it should be noted that the same discourse does not apply this distinction to sloth and torpor or to restlessness and worry, although both these hindrances could also arise owing to either the mind door or the five sense door experiences. So that's saying the... Um, um, the um, the, the internal, so the, the um, when it's only related to mind, um, so not using the eye, ear, tongue, or nose, or body, then calling that internal, and anything that's related to the the uh, the five senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body, then is um, referred to as bahida, or external. The passage could refer to the arising of these hindrances owing to mind door events, ajata, or owing to a sense door input. On the other hand, the qualification internal occurs in the Satipatthana Sutta, also as part of the main instruction contemplating the hindrances and the awakening factors. This usage does not seem to be related to this distinction between experiences by way of the mind door and that of the five sense doors. So, the mind, the mano, uh, on one on the one hand, and then the five senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body, on the other, but appears instead to emphasise the sense that a hindrance or an awakening factor is present within me, quote unquote, paralleling the commentary understanding of internal as referring to oneself. Elsewhere in the discourses, ajata on its own does indeed denote what is internal in the sense of being a predominantly, predominantly mental type of experience. A typical example of such usage is the second jhana, which the standard descriptions qualify as a state of internal serenity. Internal in the sense of mental also occurs in the Udhesa Vibhanga Sutta, which contrasts an internally stuck state of mind with consciousness being externally distracted. Yet in this discourse, external, which accords to the above interpretation, should stand only for the five physical senses, uh, refers to all six senses. Similarly, in other discourses, internal stands not only for pure mind or events, but is at times related to all six senses. So in short, it's very confusing. <laughs>
<laughs> does it relate to is it internal is that just the mind or is that all six senses or is it just me in here or is it as the the five senses uh, that is that out there and uh, or is it all the same thing or is it all different that's why i said it's a uh, the Buddha, I feel, is using the, the, the words in a quite a broad sense, and you can make a case for all kinds of different interpretations. Yeah, uh, these do make sense, and you've got precedent from the suttas. But the, the, the issue can be said, yeah, but it says in the suttas, absolutely see, I see here, the Buddha says, and uh, in that search for clarity, then the, um, the what we're... Um, so we're missing is that that um, the mind is is grasping, and that the uh, the um, the issue is that uh, the the mind is trying to pin down something that is say being described in a in a broad way, and you can you can make a case for these different kinds of interpretation very very easily, but um, the the main thing is to uh, be putting it into practice, <laughs> to to be. Uh, so I say taking you know, one approach. Okay, if if I look at it this way, how does that work? If I if I if I take it to mean this, you know, that uh, ajata so internal means me and this this body, this mind, and bahida means other people, other animals, other beings, and and out there. How does that work? Does that have a meaning when I uh, if I'm relating to it this the body in that way? How does that work? Is that useful? Or if I, or you say, okay, well, let's try a different interpretation. If I think of this as internal, just means my mind, and external means my sense objects. Does that mean that I shouldn't be paying attention to the states of mind or the activities of, of other beings around me? But I'm just referring to the satipatthana in terms of this life. What's the effect of that? If I interpret it in that way, if I work with it like that, what's the result? Where, do, where what does that bring? So that we're trying things out and, and using the teachings to explore and see for ourselves. As in terms of, of taking hold of interpretations and grasping them, there's a, a very significant sutta called the uh, Many Kinds of Feeling, the Bahu Vedaniya Sutta. I think it's number 59 in the uh, Majjhimanikaya. I looked through it the other day, so I think it's 59. Anyway, the many kinds of feeling, and it starts off with two people having an argument, and, and the the uh, they are uh, um, they're both disciples of the Buddha, and they're having this argument. And one said, "Well, I, you know, I, I uh, I've heard the Buddha say that there's there's only two kinds of feeling," and the other one says, "Rubbish." I think it's Panchakanga, the carpenter, is one of them, uh, and so he says, "Rubbish." And you know, uh, uh, I've listened to the Buddha many times, and he always says there's three kinds of feeling. Said, well, I've heard him say there's two kinds of feeling. Well, I've heard him say, he says there's three kinds of feeling. Uh, it's not just sukha and dukkha, it's sukha and dukkha and adukama sukha. It's not just pleasant and painful, there's also a neutral feeling. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And then uh, they have the wisdom to go and take this discussion to the Buddha. And say, Venerable Sir, there's been this disagreement between the two of us. And then, so they ask the Buddha for his, okay, you know, you, you tell him, sir, you know. There's only two, right? No, no, you tell him. It's three, right? It's it's a kind of scenario of sort of being dragged before the headmaster kind of uh, picture. These uh, two two lads arguing with each other. And the Buddha very quietly says, well, uh, on certain occasions I've talked about two kinds of feeling. Yes. And on other occasions I've talked about three kinds of feeling. And I've talked about six kinds of feeling. 
and the 18 kinds of feeling, and the 36 kinds of feeling, and the 108 kinds of feeling. <laughs> in, the, in the Buddha's uh, inimitable uh, way. So, in the, And he just points out that you can talk about these things in all sorts of... You can slice the pie in many, many different ways, and um, it's, it's not a fixed thing. So in terms of this whole issue, this area of attaching to views, and... Um, uh, and the, the way of using language, I think that's a really excellent example. So it's called the, the many kinds of feeling, because uh, it just this showing how the Buddha relates. Well, yeah, I've talked about two kinds of feeling. Yeah, true, and three kinds. Yep, and six, and eighteen, and thirty-six, and one hundred and eight. It's like as many as you want, really. And so it's a, uh, it's not a matter of how you slice the pie, as it were. It, um, but uh, how we take the teachings and apply them moment by moment to our experience and how they, they bring about that, the uh, ending of dukkha rather than increasing it. It's, it's, always, it's always important to recollect that, that these teachings, listening to the teachings, practicing the teachings, this is all about ending dukkha, ending suffering rather than increasing it. These passages suggest that to understand internal and external as respective references to mind-door and five-sense-door events is not always appropriate. The same holds true in relation to several of the Satipatthana contemplations. Among the six sense spheres, for example, a distinction can easily be made between the mind-door and the physical sense-doors. Yet it, it, yet it is difficult to conceive of a meaningful contemplation that treats the entire set of six sense spheres first internally from a purely mental viewpoint and then externally from the perspective of the five sense doors. In summary, and so if you can follow the logic of that, just um, it does again. It doesn't really make sense to 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 try and relate to the the senses in, in that the, in that way. Just to, if you follow it through that interpretation, it just the, that interpretation falls apart when you consider the um, contemplation of of the six senses. In summary, although alternative ways of understanding internal and external satipatthana have their practical value, to understand internal as referring to oneself and external as referring to others offers a practicable form of contemplation which can, moreover, claim support from the discourses, the Abhidhamma, and the commentaries, and also from me, for what it's worth. So, so uh, uh, I feel that's a very, uh, uh, very helpful analysis that he's he's made. In the end, whichever interpretation one may adopt, once contemplation is practiced both internally and externally, it entails a shift towards a comprehensive type of practice. At this stage, even the boundary between I and other, or internal and external, is left behind, leading to a comprehensive vision of phenomena as such, independent of any sense of ownership. Such a more wide-ranging view involves either a contemplation of oneself and others, or a contemplation of any internal phenomenon together with its external counterpart. Thus, each of the ways of understanding internal and external, discussed above, ultimately lead 
to a more comprehensive appreciation of the phenomena under observation. Based on such a comprehensive view of phenomena, Satipatthana practice then proceeds to the next aspect mentioned in the refrain, awareness of their impermanent nature. So his, his use of the word comprehensive there uh, is, is kind of interesting. Um, and if I'm understanding what he's, uh, he's saying there, that as that, uh, this is how I'm reading what he's, he's saying, uh, as the, um, that contemplation is developed, I say, oh, that's just um, the, uh, the activity of you know, that person. Um, that is, uh, they are, it's their body that's moving across the room, or it's um, their mood of happiness, or their, um, uh, or <clears throat> this is my feeling of uh, anxiety, or whatever. That uh, as that um, contemplation, whether it's internal or external, whether you say, oh, this is my, my feeling of anxiety inside, or that person out there is, is sitting on a chair, or that person's angry, or yeah, I'm feeling um, excited. That the uh, when that's developed, then it's recognised. Oh, this is an experience. This is happening within the field of, of awareness. This is what's being known. Um, and like the the kind of language that Lumpur Sumato likes to use of uh, saying to reflect the world is happening in your mind. You know, the world is in your mind. Uh, that uh, I, uh, I feel is what is um, being referred to here, in a sense, is bringing it within this uh, and recognizing that, well, even the world out there, the external is actually, <laughs> it's all really internal insofar as it's all part of this field of experience known here. And um, in that respect, the, that teaching of the, the Buddha to, um, to Rohitasa, the, the, uh, the deva about, uh, uh, when this was a, a deva who had, as a, a, a a, uh, a human being in their previous life, they had had the ability to, to travel great distances, to fly through the air. They were a, a skywalker. Before Luke, there was a Rohitasa, and uh, said that uh, he had made this resolution to, to travel to the end of the world. And he said, even though I made this resolution, I could, stri I could stride from one side of, uh, of the continent of Jambudvipa, from India to the other, uh, I journeyed for a hundred years, but I, I wasn't able to get to the end of the world, and I died on the journey. And so the Buddha said to Rohitasa, um, Yes, indeed, you cannot reach the end of the world by walking, but I declare to you that unless you reach the end of the world, you won't reach the end of suffering. You won't reach the end of dukkha. And then he makes this very um, significant uh, statement. Uh, in this very body, this fathom-long body with its, with its thoughts and perceptions, there is the, the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. Um, and so it's an exact counterpart to the Four Noble Truths, the, the expression that he uses. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, makes the, the um, interesting declaration. He thinks that's the most significant philosophical statement in the Pali Canon, but, uh, which is not a small thing. He's not someone who's very uh, prone to exaggeration or speaking in hyperbolic ways and uh, overstating things but uh, so it's a it's a, a very powerful and um, a, uh, clear statement from Bhikkhu Bodhi and if we take that up and reflect 
it's in a way speaking about this same quality. This what he what Analio is speaking about as a comprehensive type of practice. Is, as I'm reading it, is like that recognition of oh, the world is happening here. The origin of the world, the world arises from sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, feeling. This is the origin of the world, uh, and it's uh, and it's and it's cessation also when that when the world is seen as empty. When I recognize, well, I see uh, all the, uh, the the aspects of the sala, us all gathered here. I see the color of the carpet, the sound of my voice, the um, patterns of people sitting on the floor on chairs. The to to recognize well this is woven together from sight sound smell taste touch uh, arising here but these are just patterns of consciousness I close my eyes visual consciousness disappears I open my eyes visual consciousness returns it's the, and these are uh, these aspects of the five khandhas they're they're all empty they're void they're they're insubstantial transparent they have no in, intrinsic um, <coughs> fabric. Uh, and no, no in, intrinsic independent substance that, that forms them, and so that um, as when we use a phrase like the end of the world, you might think, oh, this means like the planet burning up or someone dropping a, a huge bomb or, or um, the Death Star coming along and zapping the planet and destroying it or the end of the eon. But the end of the world is, in this respect, is seeing that the, the world, uh, what we call the world, is already empty. That it's, it had no, and has no intrinsic substance. That the patterns of consciousness that we experience, uh, that from which the world is formed, these are, these are all intrinsically void and, and empty. They're, they are uh, insubstantial. <clears throat> and. Uh, and then the Buddha is saying that's how the end of suffering is is reached, the end of the world. Um, he said that one you can't know the end of the suffering unless you know the end of the world, well, unless you know you, you've reached the end of the world. So, and that's also how uh, in his teaching to Mogaraja in the Sutta Nipata, the Mogaraja asks the Buddha, "How can we avoid the king of death? How can the the um, uh, pra- the the uh, uh, the uh, the king of death. How can how can that be avoided? And then the Buddha says, by seeing everything as empty, by seeing everything as as a sunya, as void. That's how the king of death is is evaded. So that this uh, this kind of reflection that Lumpur uh, Samadhi uh, would would use, and I also like to to talk about and to suggest that bringing the world into the mind and seeing. The world is part of this whole Satipatthana process of recognizing. Oh, this is this experience, this feeling, this thought, this activity, this object. It's known here. It happens here. It's experienced in, in this mind. And then that uh, that reflection then leads on to the uh, consideration of impermanence. So it's all happening here. And then the exploration or the further um, investigation. Then goes to to look at the the impermanent and transient nature of it. So I I, I think I'm understanding his what he's saying here as, uh, in the, in a, the way that he means, but I could be wrong, of course. To not to be presenting more uh, things in a more confusing way, but when he's using that word um, comprehensive, based on such a comprehensive view of phenomena. Um, uh, I th- it seems to be that, that he's using that word comprehensive uh, in that way of a sense of 
uh, inclusivity uh, and also recognizing that this is uh, uh, you know, a known as a uh, as a phenomenon that this is a pattern of experience eye consciousness ear consciousness nose tongue body mind consciousness that is taking shape in, in this moment and it's being known as that and then that uh, um, is a sort of a, an intrinsic part of the Satipatthana as um, a investigation. So, any questions or reflections? It's all perfectly clear. <laughs> Or is it just uh, completely confusing? <laughs> if there's any, if there are, if there's anything that needs clarifying or would be helpful to ask about, please don't be shy. These readings are for you; they're not for me. So, if something will be helpful to explain a bit more or to speak about, then uh, happy to expand. I think. It seems quite straightforward to me, partly because of having observed how my mind changes, but also because I have a strong sense of uh, how a human baby has no sense of existing inside its body boundaries. So that whole sense is a completely constructed mental set that develops Mm -hmm. over living in the world, bumping into tables, experience being picked up, put down, the whole thing. And and similarly, the sense of the, the inner body ex- comes to be learned to be a thing through drinking, farting, or whatever. So, and, and we hold that and we value it, and it has all sorts of useful social ramifications. I know my space, this person knows their space, mm-hmm. we'll know when we're too close to each other. Uh, but actually, if one wants to explore the Dhamma, one comes to know that it is completely constructed. Mm-hmm. The baby doesn't know that it's not got a construction, but <laughs> the, the more free mind knows that actually, beyond the object world of experience of me and my body mm-hmm. actually it's complete, it looks all completely different it mm-hmm. feels completely different it's experienced completely different and it just really is a matter of what the mind wants to open to it's, it's very interesting that the, the, the word for mine is mama like the primordial like the, the, the child the first possession is mama <laughs> And that the and it's it's the, it, that's the uh, uh, the the connotation is like that the the first impact is like that's the source of security, food, comfort, everything. Mama, mine, mine. <laughs> and that the, and it's not a it's not a coincidence that the word uh, the you know that's the almost universal um, sound that represents mother around in the world in many many languages. That the child makes when it's uh, it's hungry, um, and that that's also the expression of mindness. The first the first feeling of ownership, even when before there's an ego, there's mine, <laughs> mama. Yeah. 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 Y
Yes, yeah, from that because it needs to have that important <laughs> aim for that. And when a child doesn't have that, when what we call uh, aut- uh, autism, when a child doesn't form that kind of a bond or doesn't make that that doesn't register things in that way, then it's uh, it's very distressing for both for the, the child's main you know, to maintain itself, and then for the parents because the child is not not uh, giving those signals or is not connecting with the the, the mother or the parents in the in that expected and an ordinary way. I remember also when years ago uh, near Chithurst, the the family who lives on the corner uh, at Copy Hall Cottage, uh, they're all grown up now. Quite, uh, the, uh, uh, but uh, quite early on, uh, the um, the family had uh, young children, and this uh, I was walking past on the uh, arms round one morning, going by the the cottage. Uh, by the uh, into the forest, and uh, the mother had put out pieces of stale bread on the onto the lawn uh, for the you know, for the birds to 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 pick at, and this little girl who was about two uh, had sort of picked it up and had this 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 slice of bread in her mouth, and then as just as I was walking past her, mother said, "Oh, don't eat that. That's for the birds." And she said, "Oh, but Jane's eating it." Like, so that Je- this Jane thing was was part of the world. It, she didn't say I'm eating it. It was it was uh, she used the, the name like that. Uh, I thought that's really intriguing that she hadn't sort of in, individuated to that. I, I am this this thing. It was like a, 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 just getting the language uh, organized, and also how uh, you know the, there was the bird things, and there was the Jane thing, and there's the mum thing. <laughs> how she sort of spoke of herself in the third person. Isn't it? Well, in my experience anyway, it's uh, often the, the, the boundaries between what is internal and external can become very blurred. Um, mm-hmm. And in the, in the end, really all you're dealing with is, is mental objects. Because the, uh, you know, the, um, experience of the physical body so you have a sense impression but it's also immediately followed or, or somehow um, stuck together with a mental image yes yeah. you know and it doesn't the, the body does not exist without that mental image right it's just a collection of hardness hotness whatever it is yeah well and, and also the parts of the body because i can say my knee down there but the mind is creating an image of the body in three dim- in its in its own image, a three dimensional space, and and that the, the the feeling is oh, it's down there in, in my knee. I can feel my my finger touching my knee down there, but that thereness and downness is is also a part of a mental construction. The body make the mind makes an image of the body, and that, and and so it can also make a faulty image of the body. And people have phantom. Li- I think you lent me a book on that phantom limb. Syndrome, which is uh, when people have lost limbs or, or uh, digits and such like, and, and they can still feel it because, uh, at least my understanding is that the mind is still making an image of the of the limb, even though the limb is no longer there, so, because the, the uh, what we relate to is the mind's image or the sort of representation of that, and it, it's not, uh, it hasn't rejigged the. Um, there's a in that, the book um, 
the uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, and there's a, a a unique case that's described in there by uh, Oliver Sacks as a neuro a neurologist, psychiatrist. And, and this woman, she went in for a, a routine operation and then came out from the the the, op the operation was a success, but but they, she had this weird mental effect that happened. And, and as a result of the operation, she, she'd lost her ability to represent her body in, in, as a mental form. They, at the time, it was the only known case of this. So her, body could, her mind couldn't make an image of her body. She could see it. She could, all, everything worked. All the nerves and muscles worked. But she couldn't create an image of it. So she actually had to like, move her body and relate to her body sort of as if it was like a puppet, like you know, pulling the strings to, to, to move the body. I should completely relearn how to function in the human world. And somehow the, the effect of the anesthetic and the, the, what they had, had done had switched that off. And so the, the, uh, we don't realize, we think, well, it's my body, I can feel it, I can see it, I just move it around, and my hand is down there, and you know, it's up there. And we, are, uh, we don't realize how much that those are constructed. And when, like that, that woman's condition, or when we uh, get dementia, and then you can't can't relate to to the body or to space uh, in the same coherent way that the, the wires start to get crossed in the system. You and then you can't relate to here or there or you know, up or down or, or or inside or outside in the in the same way. And then, then if you're not prepared for that, you haven't contemplated anicca, then then it's very distressing. Um, but we, uh, the more we realize, oh, this, the the sense of self and the sense of a body and the sense of of space, these are all uh, conditioned and and supported. That when they they're no longer supported, or they they, they disintegrate, or, or things no longer fit together, then the, the there isn't the same sense of distress or loss, uh, confusion, because you you've already recognized, oh, this it's going to hold together for a while. But it won't hold together forever. It's not something that's that's intrinsic. My mind is creating thereness. <laughs> it's a, it's creating up and down. It's not uh, intrinsically something that the the mind will know. So then we are uh, and we are, we have the wisdom to to be uh, say to be ready for it to be to be changing and to be unreliable. With reference to that, when, when the Satipatthana looks at mind objects, it's still talking about internal and external mind objects. I, I'll take your word for it at the moment. I think, I think so, yes. Okay. So how, how, does, how does that make sense? Well, um, I say, <clears throat> if you've got a furrowed brow, then, I, then an external mind object, you go, oh, Sister Tisara has got something on her mind because her brow is furrowed. So that's a, a mind object, but it's out there, just like a, an external mood or an external body. It's, that's how I read it. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, we can read a little bit. The next section is impermanence. So we'll read a few paragraphs of this. The refrain instructs the meditator to contemplate quote, 
the nature of arising, the nature of passing away, and the nature of both arising and passing away. Or quote unquote. Paralleling the instruction on internal and external contemplation, the three parts of this instruction represent a temporal progression which leads from observing the arising aspect of phenomena to focusing on their disappearance and culminates in a comprehensive vision of impermanence as such. According to the discourses, not seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena is simply ignorance, while to regard all phenomena as impermanent leads to knowledge and understanding. Insight into the impermanence of the five aggregates, or of the six sense spheres, is right view, and thereby leads directly on to realization. Thus the direct experience of impermanence represents indeed the power aspect of meditative wisdom. These passages clearly show the central importance of developing a direct experience of the impermanent nature of all phenomena, as envisaged in this part of the Satipatthana refrain. The same is reflected in the commentarial scheme of the insight knowledges, which details key experiences to be encountered during the path to realization, where the stage of apprehending the arising and passing away of phenomena is of central importance. So that uh, the, what's called the stages of insight, um, which might be familiar to, uh, to many people, um, uh, particularly expounded on by uh, uh, teachers such as Lady Sayadaw, Mah uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, um, that uh, these 16 stages of insight, that's a commentarial analysis, and so you don't have that um, spelled out in such a way in the, the suttas, as, as far as I'm aware. It's like a, a sort of derived succession of, of ever-deepening uh, insight um, that you, uh, you find in the commentarial literature. The, uh, <clears throat> these statements that he makes about the importance of insight into impermanence, this is, um, insight into the impermanence of the five aggregates or the six senses is right view and thereby leads directly on to realization. So that, um, that's a powerful statement and, um, uh, and it's also important in that to um, it's to to recognize that it's not just oh I believe that everything's impermanent yeah I've got no argument with that therefore I must have right view <laughs> it, it, if only it was so simple yeah. like the the idea of uh, French language is not the same as being able to speak French or Swedish or German or Thai or whatever or English uh, the so that it's not just the idea of impermanence but the moment-by-moment -moment, uh, realization of that. that that's the, the thing that makes the difference. And one of the, the ways that uh, uh, the breakthrough to stream entry is, uh, say, defined or designated or described uh, uh, very, very frequently in the scriptures, uh, like in the very first uh, instance in um, the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel, um, when uh, Kandanya understands the, the Buddha's teaching and, and uh, makes the, the breakthrough, then 
uh, the the way that the the teaching describes uh, what Kandanya uh, saw, what he understood was Yankinchi Samudaya Dhamman Sabantang Niroda Damanti. Whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. That's what Kandanya saw when 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 the Buddha says Anyasi Watabo Kandanya. Kandanya knows you know, what he knew was that all that arises passes away. Uh, and again, as Lumpur Sumedho was very uh, um, <coughs> very uh, uh, very frequently uh, describing, indicating, and, and building his teachings around, it doesn't sound like much. You know, what goes up must come down. What begins ends. Whatever is born must die. Yeah, right. Well, even the, uh, you know a three-year-old could probably understand that and and take it to be true. But uh, so it's not just the 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 concept that. All things are impermanent, but that the direct um, uh, realization of that moment by moment. Uh, so it's not just an idea, but it's an actual knowing. Like the difference between knowing that a language exists and being able to speak it. Uh, that's the uh, say the, the difference is a whole, uh, not just orders of magnitude, but there's whole ex- other dimensions to it that are not there just in, in the concept. Like to say water. You know, water is a word, but it's, it represents this stuff in the glass. But the word is not the stuff. <laughs> it refers to it, but the referent is the, the water itself. And so similarly, talking about impermanence, you know, the impermanence is an idea. It's a concept. It's a word. Uh, and so knowing the word is not the same as knowing the quality, the direct realization of that. And so that uh, <coughs> the um, when it says insight into the impermanence of the five aggregates or of the six senses is right view, and that's, that's very well phrased because it's, it's insight into that, it's uh, the, the direct uh, re, uh, realization, the direct knowing of that. Uh, and another aspect of, of impermanence, even though... Um, uh, it's it's built around arising and passing away. Here, another point uh, that comes up quite often is how, say, uh, certain teachers, particularly uh, Lumpur Cha, when talking about anicca, would more often use the term uncertain, uncertainty, um, uh, as a translation uh, for for uh, anicca when talking about that. Mainer is the the uh, the Thai. Rendering uncertain, uh, it's not. It's not a sure thing. It's not. It's not sure, and uh, so uh, people can understand. Can can wonder. Well, what's what's the connection between uncertainty and impermanence? And, and so I think it's helpful to to reflect on that when we're talking about impermanence, how they connect. So, uh, in a way, the impermanence is talking about the the nature of the object of that thing. This book is changing. Uh, this uh, this uh, dhamma reading is in a state of change. You know, the the clock is ticking. Time is passing. Um, so that uh, the quality of impermanence is talking about the objective ex- uh, reality. If that is uh, say the um, quality of change is describing that, but then the uh, the quality of uncertainty is how the heart receives that quality of change that that thing is is changing 
So this mind, on the subject side, doesn't know what it's going to change into. So that uncertainty is the subjective side of the equation. And impermanence is the objective side. Again, not trying to be too philosophical about it. but So the felt experience of, of things changing is uncertainty. We don't know what it's going to change into. We don't know. So when Lumpur Cha would stress, uh, and just as, as uh, you know, when you when you pick up those words, impermanence can sound a little bit remote or abstract, but uncertain is talking about my feeling, my emotion, and so it's uh, just in that respect. Uh, hopefully, people can get a sense of how um, uh, Lumpur Cha would focus on that, that felt sense of. Of, uh, of impermanence when when that the mind is open to that um, that quality of transiency uh, there's a, 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 an aspect of, of mystery of not knowing of, of uncertainty and that that um, and seeing that any uh, perception any judgment any concept any word it can only um, uh, say point to the reality it can't be the 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 uh, the whole story and uh, there's another very significant passage in the suttas which uh, comes up quite often which is yena yena himanyanti tatatanghoti anyatati whatever you conceive it to be the truth is always other than that so that the the concept can't match the reality the concept is like it's only got two dimensions. The reality's got three. So that the concept, like the, no matter how well you describe water, it's still just uh, it's just uh, it's just words. It's not the actual uh, quality itself. And so uh, that whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. Is a uh, in a way that's that realization is uh, it's it feeds into and supports that insight into uh, uncertainty to, into anicca. The other two characteristics of conditioned existence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, absence of a self, become evident as a consequence of a direct experience, and thereby realistic appreciation of the truth of impermanence. The discourses frequently point to this relationship between the three characteristics by presenting a progressive pattern that leads from awareness of impermanence, anicca sanya via acknowledging the unsatisfactory nature of what is impermanent, aniche dukkasanya, to appreciating the selfless nature of what is unsatisfactory, dukkhe anatta sanya. The same pattern features prominently in the Anatalakana Sutta, in which the Buddha instructed his first disciples to become clearly aware of the impermanent nature of each aspect of subjective experience, expounded in terms of the five aggregates. So, I just happen to have a copy of that here. So, as we recite very often, uh, just to use a couple of examples, how it begins, um, I used to use the, the one on form. Form bhikkhus is not self. Rupang bhikkhuwe anatta. Form bhikkhus is not self. If bhikkhus, form were self, then form would not lead to affliction. And one might be able to say in regard to form, let my form be thus. 
let my form not be thus. But since, because form is not self, form therefore leads to affliction, and one is not able to say in regard to form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. Then he pursues the same analysis through uh, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. And then he, uh, he follows the pattern that is just described in that comment by um, Venerable Analia. What do you think about this, Bhikkhus? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir. But is that which is impermanent painful or pleasurable? Painful, Venerable Sir. But is it fit to consider that which is impermanent, painful, of a nature to change as, this is mine, I am this, this is myself? It is not, Venerable Sir. So that's what he's uh, describing about. The, you start off with Anicca, and then uh, is that which is impermanent, painful, or pleasurable? So because of that impermanence, if something is, is um, painful, then it's, it's painful uh, already. And if it's uh, if it's something that's pleasurable, then that pleasurableness is going to change, uh, and it'll, that the pleasure will, will end. So that's why he says, "Is that which is impermanent, painful, or pleasurable?" And they just say, "Painful, dukang bante." And then, uh, is it fit to consider that which is impermanent, painful, of a nature to change? As this is mine, I am this. This is myself. E tang mama, e tang mama. This is mine. Eso hamasmi, eso me aka. So I was quoting that the other day, and <clears throat> so uh, within the the time of the Buddha and from the Vedas and uh, the the um, Vedic philosophy generally, that the the Atman, the nature of the the Atman or the the the, the self was considered to be sat chit ananda, which means being consciousness bliss. And so the Buddha takes the sort of the the opposite tack, and. Uh, uh, whether that particular term existed in the time of the Buddha is, is uh, I think, debatable. Probably um, not exactly in that form, but that certainly was considered. You know, if something is your atta, is your true self, if that's supposed to be an aspect of ultimate reality, then it should be blissful, it should be permanent, and you know, it should be uh, you know, who and what we are. And so then um, the Buddha sort of approaching that assumptions about the nature of Atman by saying, well, if it's impermanent and unsatisfactory, how could this be what is really atta, what is who and what we are, because the implication would be that the atta is intrinsically blissful and permanent and, and reliable. So just to then finish off that this little paragraph. Yes? Is there a difference between when it says impermanent and of a nature to change? He mentions both of those. Is there any difference between them? No. So. I'd say. I'm sure somebody's written a PhD about, well, not sure, but somebody might have written a PhD about how different they are, but I, I take them to be synonymous. Okay, so just to finish this uh, little paragraph here. Based on this, he then led them to the conclusion that whatever is impermanent cannot yield lasting satisfaction, and therefore does not qualify to be considered as I, mine or myself. This understanding, after being applied to all possible instances of each aggregate, was powerful enough to result in the full awakening of the first five monk disciples of the Buddha. The underlying pattern of the Buddha's instruction in this discourse shows that insight into impermanence 
serves as an important foundation for realizing dukkha and anatta. The inner dynamic of this pattern proceeds from clear awareness of impermanence to a growing degree of disenchantment, which corresponds to dukkha sanya, the perception of unsatisfactoriness, which in turn progressively reduces the I-making and my-making embedded in one's mind. And those Pali terms are ahankara and mamankara, I-making and my-making. The importance of developing insight into the arising and passing away of phenomena is highlighted in the Vibhanga Sutta of the Sangyuta Nikaya, according to which this insight marks the distinction between mere establishment of a Satipatthana and its complete and full development. So, uh, that the initial uh, establishment of Satipatthana focusing, say, on the body or on a feeling, then this uh, development of the uh, uh, the insight into impermanence is like taking that that uh, reflection deeper. This is the mere establishment of Satipatthana and its complete and full development. This passage underlines the importance of the refrain for proper development of Satipatthana. Mere awareness of the various objects listed under the four Satipatthanas might not suffice for the task of developing penetrative insight. What is additionally required is to move on to a comprehensive and equanimous vision of impermanence. Direct experience of the fact that everything changes, if applied to all aspects of one's personality, can powerfully alter the habit patterns of one's mind. This may well be why awareness of impermanence assumes a particularly prominent role in regard to the contemplation of the five aggregates where, in addition to being mentioned in the refrain, it has become part of the main instruction. So I'll leave it there for today. There's some um, more comments he makes about um, uh, sustaining that, but I'll, I'll leave it there for the time being. I also just wanted to, there was a quote from the Megia Sutta that I... Uh, referred to the other day so i thought i'd read that out for you all as well oh, megia was the, this um, monk who went off to meditate by himself and the buddha said um you're not ready megia you know if you if you go off and practice alone yeah it's gonna uh, gonna be um it's gonna be some difficulties for you and megia was no no i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it i'm <laughs> i'm sure i'll be fine and then gets into all kinds of tangles and, and mental troubles. And then the, comes back and the Buddha gives this wonderful discourse and uh, describes different aspects of meditation. And, and the last part of it is relevant to uh, this particular aspect of uh, developing insight around Anicca. Uh, loving kindness should be developed for the purpose of abandoning ill will. Mindfulness of breathing for the purpose of cutting off discursive thoughts. Perception of impermanence uh, should be developed for the purpose of eliminating the conceit I am, asmimana. For when a person perceives impermanence, perception of not-self becomes established in him. And when a person perceives not-self, he arrives at the elimination of the conceit I am, and that is Nibbana here and now. So, Venerable Nyanamoli's translation there. So that's... Um, 
very helpful sutta, and also I thought that'd be interesting to have the proper quotation on that. And that simple sequence of the development of insight into impermanence, helping to support the breakthrough to uh, let go of asmimana, and also how he says when the, the heart is free of of that uh, that conceit, then that is nibbana here and now. Sorry, was just because um, um, about the topic of impermanence, I had a question. Um, so, very much now, it makes a lot of importance on contemplating impermanence and observing the rise and fall, and it's obviously repeated in the sutta. But then, in the refrain, there's also the part that says you can observe the, one can observe the rising or the falling, or simply observe that the object is there. I will get to that in a little bit. Simply for I'm sure Venerable Analeo has comments to make on that. <laughs> he goes into great, with great thoroughness on to, to each section, but um, uh, I think he, uh, as it says, just with you know, sufficient mindfulness to know there is this. But, uh, well, we'll get to his comments in due course, but speaking of impermanence, the clock says it's five past seven, so time to finish this for the time being.